it used education as a mask for indoctrination. So the system was decided to build an army of loyal soldiers to win wars, right? With no intention of raising citizens that would think for themselves. Right. Right. And then by the 1950s, um, it started to roll around the U.S. And the government leaders were like, okay, we need to start adopting the same method and we're going to start sending kids to this like, um, you know, school setting. Mm -hmm. That's where education is going to be taken care of now, not by parents, but by, um, you know, by this school setting. Howdy, folks. Welcome to yet another episode of the Undefeated Underdogs podcast. I'm your host, Sharat. First of all, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Today, I brought a really special guest which we're aiming to like, you know, have to have this conversation for a long time. And I'm super, super stoked uh, to bring Anna Lorena Fabriga to the podcast. Anna, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Thank you so much for having me, Sharath. I was sharing with you before we started. This is my first podcast after being a mom. So I'm starting to get back at it. I'm very excited to be here. That's so awesome. That makes this episode even special and no pressure at all for me, right? <laughs> uh, right. Also, also first time since I have something there in the background. Yes. Um, yeah. Also, first podcast since my book. Um, I got the first copies of my book. So also first time talking about it. So technically, you had like two babies. I, technically, I had two babies. That is correct. I had twins. <laughs> so you, no, you not basically really. are like, yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, you're a yeah. 2X mom already. Yeah, yeah, technically. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the fun fact behind Anna being on the podcast is that when I interviewed David Perel, he's like the second guest on the, on this podcast. I'm so grateful that I literally approached him in a cold DM. He's like, yeah, let, let me do it. And after that episode, he's like, you have to talk to Anna. And I'm like, uh, that's how I approached you. And here we are. Uh, I'm That's so grateful awesome. for David as well uh, for connecting mm -hmm. us and we'll talk about, you know, of course, right of passage and David uh, in this episode, but for folks who are listening, for folks who don't know Anna, let me give you guys like a brief intro. Anna is a mother recently, a mom. She's an author. She's an edupreneur, which is something I want to un unpack as well, but she's uh, chief uh, evangelist, evangelist at Synthesis. And she's, she has this unconventional methods of teaching. She's a teacher uh, and for predominantly like help kids the, you know, train the next generation, how to raise the next generation in the most unconventional way. That's the whole theme for this episode. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's dive into it. So right off the bat, I do have like a very interesting question, which I kind of found on your website. So I found that you've moved 10 schools in your in your childhood in seven countries that's that's super big so walk me through the about the whole experience what was it like going through like one country to the other country and like you know moving places and meeting new people and all that yeah so i was born in panama that's where i'm originally from but when i was very young probably like three or four months we moved to colombia because of my dad's job he worked at a multinational corporation then we moved to Venezuela, India, Mexico, Brazil, um, the U.S. So by the time that I was 14, almost 15, 
I had attended 10 different schools, right, in the seven different countries. And um, it's interesting because a lot of people, I, I get mixed reactions when I share that. Some people say, well, that's so exciting. You've had the opportunity to go to so many places. What a fun childhood and meet so many, fr so many friends and people from different places and cultures, which is sort of the way I feel about it. And then other people say, well, oh my God, poor you, you were the new girl 10 times. And how did you even make friends or maintain friends? You had to move very quickly. How did you adapt to all the schools? Which is also true. So there's like a right. mix between both of them. Um, and definitely this, this moving around and attending so many schools, now that I, you know, in retrospect, I realize it's been a springboard for me wanting to change a lot of things in education. And so um, I actually write about this in the introduction to my book, which is as I was moving to all these different schools, again, different languages, um, different, they were different methodologies. Some were public, private, secular schools, non-denominational, religious. So it was like all across the board. And so um, I did pretty well in all these schools, but it wasn't really because I was the best student, right? It was mm -hmm. because I picked up on something that I call the game of school. And I talk about this in the book, which is mm -hmm. um, in the game of school, and it's pretty easy to master. You know, you know, I knew how many times I had to raise my hand and participate to get that participation grade. I right. knew when to shut up and not ask follow-up questions because the teacher would get upset. I knew mm -hmm. what were the things I had to memorize in order to pass the test. And then I could get, you know, get that out of the way and do the things that I wanted to do. And I knew that I had to be quiet and sit up. And it's sort of like I picked up on the things I had to do in order to pass um, without getting in trouble. And so mm. that's sort of the game of school, what I've defined as the game of school in my book. And that does not really mean that you're learning, right? You just picked up on what it is you need to pass. And so this allowed me to do well in all these different places. And then I did have this spark for learning naturally that my parents were able to cultivate when I was outside of school. And that was really the moments where I was truly learning, right? When I got the opportunity to do the things that I wanted to do under my own, you know, measures and explore different things and try different sports and just everything that I did outside of school, then that's really when I was learning and getting this spark and curiosity and, and desire to keep learning. And so I did have a natural way of explaining things in ways that captivated people's attention. And as I was growing up, my dad had an educational consulting company on the side. So I got to work with kids and I really fell in love with this idea of teaching and working with children. I found them fascinating. I was constantly learning as I was teaching them. And it was something really fun and worth my while, right? Right. Um, but then when I was studying formally education at NYU, um, part of the education program is you get to observe, be a student teacher and observe for 200 hours students um, in different schools in New York. And so when I was doing that, I started like that's when it dawned in me what's wrong with the education system. I started to look at the kids and I was like, oh, my God, they are all playing the game of school. They all know, mm. you know, when the teacher's not looking, they're playing under their seat, they're falling asleep, they're not really right. excited about what's going on. And again, I'm generalizing, of course, there's some students that are engaged, and of course, there were teachers that were the exception. But in right. general, they were doing the things that I was doing, right? Um, and mm. I was an expert at this game, right? Or so I, but I just didn't know that it was universal. And so the kids were, they had picked up on the things that they had to do in order to pass, but they weren't really engaged in learning and in what they were doing. And I also realized, wow, these kids are sitting in these chairs for like seven hours a day, five days a week during the most important years of their lives. I cannot believe that this is what we're doing with the kids, right? They're coming out unprepared for the real world on like they're not motivated. They don't want to keep learning. Um, and there was just so many red flags 
and I started questioning a lot of the things that we were doing. And I was like, well, when I have my classroom, I'm going to do things differently. And to a certain extent, I did. I tried my best within the system and mm. within the parameters, because of course, you still have to adhere to a lot of things um, within the school system. So in New York, Panama and Boston, the three places where I taught, I tried to create a student-centered environment where my students had lots of choices. We did a lot of projects. I tried to deviate as much as I could from the curriculum while still covering the things that they needed to know for the end of the year tests. Um, and I just try to make, in general, learning fun and exciting for my students. I would have them participate and, and sort of tell me what they were already interested in learning about and trying to, you know, dig into that. But I had just very limited time because I had to cover a lot of things from the curriculum. And so I tried my best within the classroom. And I think I did a good job because the students were super excited to come to school. They loved my classroom. They were excited to learn. They were all writing and reading and, and understanding math and applying it. However, I started to notice that as they would graduate from my classroom and move on to different grade levels, even though they were great teachers, you know, afterwards as well for some students, they would start to lose that spark and they would start to sort of, it would get tampered down. And I started to realize, well, you know, regardless of what we do, when, you know, kids have this curiosity and built and decide to learn, right? Like that's sort of like how humans are wired. But the problem is that as they get older and they enter school and they go you know, up levels, they no longer have choices within the subjects or the pace that things are presented or the way the lessons are presented. So they enter a system that leaves very little choice for creativity and for exploration, for the things that really um, are the recipe for real learning, right? So they start to mm. lose interest and they start to play the game of school. That's where they move from the game of learning mm. to the game of school. And so okay. I realized I don't really want to be part of this. Like, I love working with children. I want to keep teaching. I do want to be part of, you know, the people that shape the next generation. But I just cannot keep doing this within this, this structure that we have in place. And so I started to question a lot of the things in the system. And that's when I made the hard decision to leave the classroom, right? And again, mm -hmm. I, I had all these questions and I had all this desire to work with kids, just not within the system. So I left without knowing what I was going to do or who I was going to talk to, um, if there was this such thing as alternative education or what, what right. were people doing that, that, you know, the people that had realized what I had realized, which is like the system's not working. Well, what are these people doing? Right. And so I started asking like a new set of questions. So I started wondering, well, how can we transform the game of school that I was a part of in all these countries that I went to when I was growing up? Um, and then, then I got to experience as a teacher. Wow, that's so fascinating to hear the experience of you moving like different countries, different schools, different school of thought, like literally pun intended, <laughs> the various types of like, you know, uh, systems mm -hmm. and whatnot. And, and the, the curiosity of my, uh, as, as a student myself, I'm very curious, why did you leave the whole education system? Like what was, mm -hmm. what, what driven you to like, okay, this is enough. I want to come out of it. Yeah. So as I was mentioning, um, I got to see when I was observing the students as part of the student teaching um, hours that I had to do to become a teacher, sort of the graduate program. Um, I started to notice that they were doing the same things that I was doing, sort of playing this game of school where there's not really learning. Um, and and and, you know, then I when I became a teacher and I try to do things differently in my classroom, I try to create a, a student-centered place where the kids were excited to come and deviate from the curriculum as much as I could and make it, you know, lots of project-based learning where the kids had ownership and agency over their learning and choices. Um, but I still had to teach for the test. I still had to cover um, a one-size-fits-all curriculum. There was right. very, uh, you know, little time to do the things that the 
students were curious about and wanted to learn about and the things that I found valuable. So I realized that there was very little I could do to change the system from within and being a teacher. And so as much as I loved it and loved working with kids, I was like, there has to be a better way. And I'm not going to be able to do much you know, in the classroom right now within the system. So I decided to leave and um, started asking a new set of questions that sort of guided me to um, speak to different people in the alternative education space and see what they were doing and what kind of learning experiences out there that did not have to adhere to this rigid school curriculum and and this structure, right, that could really focus on the things that the students were interested in doing and, and sort of, you know, just kids don't need to be forced to learn, right? You just have to give them the tools and the inspiration and sort of like the field so that they can go ahead and do it. And so um, that's, that's when I did that transition. And, and I don't know if you want for me to talk about like how I ended up where I ended up. Um, It involves David and Rite of Passage and then meeting the people that I met. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think a couple of follow-ups from that Mm -hmm. whole experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why do you think, the system is the way the system is right now, especially when it comes to schools, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Predominantly, That's the reason it. I'm asking that question is because children are like plain blank white pages. They're, mm-hmm. They have nothing to like, you know, they don't have, mm-hmm. they don't come with like a set of playbooks or a set of mm-hmm. opinions slash whatever the things that we generally mm-hmm. are trained and society mm-hmm. trains. And it's, I think the majority of kids shaping themselves happens in schools, mm-hmm. right? Like, and of course, in your family time and whatnot. Uh, teachers play a massive role. Systems, the school system play a massive role. Why do you think even till today, it's freaking 2023. You are not like living in 1900s where we are not, we don't have that awareness. We know mm-hmm. kids are the future. And we know like a lot of role models became road models because of certain unconventional ways. Why do you Mm -hmm. think schools are the way schools are? Yeah. So actually, I I had that question when I was leaving the school system. I'm like, where did that, you know, where did education come from in the first place, like this system? And why are we still doing the same things? I had this exact question. And there's a whole section in the book where I talk about the history of education, which I think is um, important for people and parents in particular to um, to kind of find out and, and realize so that they start to question the same things that, that, that I started questioning when I was going through this, which is, you know, education used to be the job of parents and tutors and, and you know, like churches way back, you know, 200 years ago, right? right. But then that started to change in a region. And I'm going to get a little bit into the history, but I promise I'll do it quick and it's worth <laughs> it um, to hear, you know, what, you know, to answer your yeah. question. But that started to change in this region in Germany called Prussia. Um, government mm. leaders at the time decided that they needed to take responsibility to educate children. And that was, again, the first time that this was happening, because before it was the role and, and the mm. job of parents to educate. And so right. they had just lost this major war against Napoleon. And they were like, no, no, we need to really build an army of educated, loyal soldiers. And that's right. sort of where this idea um, comes from, right? Because they never wanted to experience a defeat like that. So then the government decided to um, design sort of the basis of our modern school system, right? Where you get the specialized buildings, the school settings, right? Mm-hmm. The teacher mm-hmm. certifications and the standardized curriculum and the extended school year that was a thing before and mandated attendance like all these things started to come from this sort of um 
idea that the, mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. Prussians had back then. And the goal was to train a generation of loyal and literate citizens that were prepared for war. So imagine, that's like where this comes from, wow. right? So they taught academic freedom. Right. They're, so they're preparing mm -hmm. like soldiers. They're not preparing exactly. Wow. Exactly. And that's so and then it, and then and then and there's like a timeline that I share in the book that's very interesting to see like visually where you see like where does it begin and how when it starts changing. But so they taught academic freedom, but it was very limited by service to the state, right? So mm. really it wasn't really with the with the aims to oh create a generation of educated people. So the system worked pretty well. Right. Prussia was able to build one of the strongest fighting for, um, forces in the world. And their model started to spread around the entire globe like wildfire. Mm -hmm. Right. That's I, I, I have a, you know, this whole section where I talk about that. And then um, that's the basis of what we know today as school. And while the Prussian system worked back then for a few things, like, for example, literacy um, rates did skyrocket. Right. A lot of people were actually now going to school and learning how to read and this kind of um, things. But it did have a very notable downside as well. It used education as a mask for indoctrination. So the system was decided to build an army of loyal soldiers to win wars, right? With no intention of raising citizens that would think for themselves. Right. Right. And then by the 1950s, um, it started to roll around the U.S., and the government leaders were like, okay, we need to start adopting the same method and we're going to start sending kids to this like, um, you know, school setting. Mm -hmm. and that's where education is going to be taken care of now, not by parents, but by, um, you know, by this school settings. Right. And so this was sort of around the time of um, the, the when you, you were having all these work corporations and run and factories. And so they were like, well, what's the best way? Obviously, the U.S. is thinking this way, like to produce lots of educated <laughs> managers. Well, we put right. them on this assembly line. Right. So right. it became like a factory model that worked very well in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, factory models work great for, for canned foods and for cars and for clothes. And, for production. and they were right. right. So they were like, oh, why don't we do this for education? Right. So the United States led the next development in the history of education, um, where it was everything around like standardization and efficiency. And so they mm -hmm. would group kids by age, what we know today as grade levels. You would mm -hmm. put them all through the same curriculum. You would hire specialized teachers for each subject. You would mm -hmm. ring bells to move them from class to class. And you would make the school day long enough to maximize output and so that parents can work and this and that. And mm -hmm. so... It was this whole idea, so schools worked like a factor in that sense, and this model really kept, um, since it was effective in the sense that parents could drop their kids off and go to work, and kids were in a safe space, and they were quote-unquote learning, because really, right. we, we've talked about, like, I don't think there's a lot of learning going on in schools, and okay. so that sort of became the base of it, and it's been years now, like 200 years Plus, wow. and we're still using the same model. Some people mm -hmm. say it's effective um, because, again, oh, it worked for me. Like, obviously, it's going to work for my kids. But when you sit down and you start to question, well, wow, like this, you know, if you look at all the other industries, everything has been changing and adapting for this new world that we live in, right? Mm -hmm. Except for schools. And, and it's very concerning because we keep churning generations of kids 
that are not prepared for the real world, that are mm -hmm. not prepared for this like digital economy that we're living in, that are not excited to keep on learning on their own. So they're not self-directed learners. And so it really is time to stop and say, well, you know, this is not working. We need alternatives. We need to start. And there's a group of people that are doing that, which is I'm part of this group, but it's, it's very few of us, right? A lot of people just keep trusting the system or they know that it doesn't work, but it's just the easiest thing for their family. And I don't judge. Um, but mm -hmm. that's sort of like where a very long um, and, you know, historic <laughs> answer to your question of why are schools the way that they do? It comes from a very, very outdated model. And do you, uh, this is like, okay, we've talked about the past. That's first of all, that's mind blowing to me because the intentions were very wrong mm -hmm. and the intentions probably are getting better but it still holds the same old foundations, which mm -hmm. probably is, mm -hmm. I, I come from, I came from India and mm -hmm. I feel the U S education system is far better, but the Indian system itself, and you've been to Indian schools as well. Mm -hmm. That's uh that's even worse than a factory. Mm -hmm. yep, yep, <laughs> Here yep. It's, it's, it, they at least get jobs. I know it's not like a, you know, a, mm -hmm. not a rosebed, but, they they typically are their cog in the wheel type of situation, but in India it's like way worse. It's it's business. Yep. It's yep. like the educators want to make money. Period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't really give a flying f about your you know the the purity of a child and whatnot. So anyway, not mm -hmm. going to rant, but that's mm -hmm. super fascinating. And let's talk about a little bit about like the future, right? Like, do you think it'll change? Do you have like an optimism or a hope, like take Fernando, like what would you imagine for him being yeah. there, going to school? Yeah. And so, so let me just give a little background. So when I left this school system, that's exactly the question that I had in mind. Well, what, what am I going to do next for the kids? You know, I, I had a very big interest in keep working with kids. And once I have children, well, what am I going to do with my kids? I don't want to put them in the school system. So what are my alternatives? And so I started to dig in and, and, and sort of explore and do my research. And there is this entire alternative education world out there that keeps getting better now with technology and mm -hmm. with parents that are open-minded and, and having the courage, because it takes mm -hmm. courage to try something different for their kids instead of just mm -hmm. doing, you know, what we've been doing for so many years. And so I joined this startup at the time, it was just me and the two founders, um, called Synthesis. Mm -hmm. And um, Synthesis was, it came from Ad Astra, this school at SpaceX, because Elon Musk had the same, you know, concern that we do, which is like, well, if my kids are not learning in traditional school, like this sucks. I want something different. I need for my kids to learn how to think for themselves, not somebody mm -hmm. telling them what to do all day. I want them to learn how to problem solve and do things that are applicable to the real world. And so right. since he did not find a school that did that, although there are some schools around the world that do, but he, he was like, I'm going to create my own school. So with one of our co-founders, Josh Dunn, he created this school um, called Ad Astra. Um, and it was all very, like it was an experimental school, a lab school. Lots of schools around the world would come visit and see how they were learning and how they were doing things differently. But their most popular class was called Synthesis. And Synthesis mm. um, um, taught kids through this like open-ended games that at first they were in pen and paper. Now Synthesis, right. which is like the, what we've done is there, it's this whole online world that we've created. But kids are learning mental models and they're learning how to seek for good explanations and how to problem solve and how to communicate in an efficient way and how to 
get rid of this fear of failing, but rather seeing something that they don't know and tackling it and figuring things out, like all these soft skills that sound like, oh, cliche, but really it's what makes you be successful in the real world, not the stuff that we're learning in school. Um, and so the kids loved it. It was a success. So we grabbed that um, right during the pandemic and we put it into software. And now it's this like team simulations that we offer to kids all over the world. And so that was the first time that I was really excited about the future of education because I said, wow, these kids are learning how to collaborate, how to problem solve and how to think. Now, how can we pair this up with the academic component? Like how can we, because again, these are you're putting into practice a lot of things, but of course, kids still have to learn things like math and reading and, and you know, core academics. Right. But I am a big believer that you can learn at home with parents. But the reality is that not every parent has the patient or the time or the resources to do this. Mm -hmm. And so Synthesis 2.0, what we launched this year, which is really groundbreaking, and this is my answer to your question about the, what the future of education looks like. I'm very excited because we just launched a digital tutor. So mm. everyone has had, you know, this amazing teacher that, you know, that they, they could teach any subject and just your eyes would like lit up, right, with wonder. And they had stories and they knew their content, but they also knew how to teach it in a way that was engaging and that you could feel like you could learn even the hardest subjects. Like I'm sure you can think of, uh, hopefully, mm -hmm. at least one teacher yeah. that was like that. Well, now, Every kid, like what if I told you that now every kid could actually have the chance to have this great teacher for every subject, right? A teacher that's like infinitely patient and knowledgeable and empathetic and just never gets tired or frustrated of teaching you. So that's what we've been able to create. And it's called the Synthesis Tutor. And so just a little bit of background. So DARPA, which is, the, you know, the agency that created the GPS and the Internet and, you know, the self-driving cars. So they um, created a long time ago by accident, this digital tutor um, for study for students who studied IT, right? And mm -hmm. so with the digital tutor, they in just 16 weeks of using it, they were able to outperform Navy technicians with 10 years of experience. Okay, mm -hmm. so 16 weeks of using the tutor, and they were able to outperform experts in the field, experts that have like over 10 years of experience. Wow. So we, it was really groundbreaking technology, but it really never, you know, it just stayed there. Nobody was really using it. So we were able to negotiate with them and, pair, and partner with them. And now mm. we're adapting that same innovative technology so that kids can learn math. So um, wow. we plan to use, it's already, it's already running and we have over mm -hmm. 9,000 kids in the wait list and we have a group of 200 kids actually using the tutor right now. And it's fascinating. It's mind blowing, especially for me as a teacher that I used so many apps to teach math in the classroom. And this is so vastly different because you really feel that you are talking to a human. And what mm. makes um, it so special is that, for example, our curriculum architect for math, which is the first, we plan to teach all the STEM subjects, but we're starting with math, right? So the mm -hmm. curriculum architect for math is Dr. James Stanton. So Dr. Stanton, is, he has like a PhD in mathematics from Princeton. He's the ambassador of this Mathematical Association of America, author of like 26 books in math and winner of like mm -hmm. 10 international awards for teaching excellence. He's the real deal. And when you sit mm -hmm. down and you talk to him, he has this zest 
for life and for math and he truly understands it and explains it in a way with stories and examples that you're like oh my god this is the teacher i want for my fernando for yeah. the kids that i know like he's just phenomenal and is the fact like, that we uh, were able mm-hmm. is it like professor feynman <laughs> It's yeah. imagine right right it's imagine having professor Feynman you record him for hours and hours and hours you you're able to capture his stories right. his examples like the things that he's lived through because you know teaching is way more than just going through a subject right yeah. you need you need stories and you need engagement and so we found that person for math and we were able to grab it and put it into this digital tutor so when you're going through the digital tutor you hear the voice and everything you truly feel like you're interacting with Dr. Tanton. The difference mm. is that it's a lot cheaper and any kid around the world has access to Dr. Tanton to learn mm. math, which is mind-blowing. And again, I saw all these math curriculums. I had always questions about like this makes no sense to me. Like why are we teaching this to kids? The order, the kids haven't mastered this and we're already moving to this. We're teaching for the test. Suddenly we have a digital tutor. Like it really does feel like the future of education that the kids are learning and getting feedback and the way and they're motivated and 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 engaged not by you know this apps used like the apps that we used in school have like the little characters and the points and gamification like no we don't have any of that the kids are just excited about the fact that they're achieving understanding and that mm. they feel like they're interacting with a human that's interesting and they're finally understanding math because of the way that he's teaching it to me this is truly groundbreaking mm. and so exciting and what the future of education will look like and kids are able to cover you know instead of being in a classroom sitting down between four walls for seven hours a day five days a week the kids will be able to fly through this you know core subjects right. actually achieve understanding because we're teaching it in a way more efficient way than teachers do do so in school they're adaptive the kids are engaged in let's say an hour or less a day Hmm. then they have the rest of the day to actually be kids be outside running go to after school like i don't know if they're interested in being entrepreneurs like start a side project or if they want to do music lessons or sports or if they want to you know join synthesis and do some um team play collaborative team play or anything that they want to do that does not involve sitting in a classroom learning for 7 hours a day so to me that that really you know it gets me excited about what i want to do with my kids in the future it's like that's the future of education hmm. like getting those core academics in an efficient and exciting way shorten the time so that kids have the rest of the afternoon to do other things right and and to be kids and so again that was like a long answer to to your no, question no. but but that's probably like this is the closest thing to the future of education that i've seen so far i love it so much because couple of things i want to like highlight from your answer one is the the past the answer about your the past of the education people try to society try to mass produce students like children like into ex soldiers or like you know ex something like you know something that's that that are like that, that doesn't match their intentions right i think what you're trying to do is mass produce practicality visual learning the knowledge and giving access to kids like throughout the world at their mm-hmm. will in their time mm-hmm. they can learn i feel that mm-hmm. shift is is massive that that i really mm-hmm. want to acknowledge that because just like how uh the germans like started like a school school system i think you guys are starting like another system mm-hmm. which is focused on the top down not the bottom up mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. in a way that affects kids the white blank 
papers are going to be filled with whatever they want not whatever mm-hmm. society wants mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that is phenomenal and number 2 is you literally gave me so much hope <laughs> by that answer is as a parent yeah. as a, as you know ruhan is getting big he's turning to in couple of years he's definitely going to schools and i i definitely want to like the next generation definitely are going to reduce going to like physical schools and like mm-hmm. i believe they're going to opt in parents like me mm-hmm. who have that awareness right like who has this right. fear of making their children go to like the same cog in the wheel system mm-hmm. i i have so much hope I, and i'm definitely go, going to recommend synthesis like not just you know to mm-hmm. my family but just friends like who have kids as well uh, yeah that's phenomenal so what you're doing is really absolutely like i is there a way can you uh using ai or anything that you bring like people like professor fineman to life for example mm-hmm. he has a lot of teachings he's written mm-hmm. like literally th- hundreds of books and yeah yeah any plans for that app well uh, uh, that can certainly be done so that's why so for example now we're starting to teach so, so we're starting with math but on the side we're also building a complexity science curriculum for example um mm. that's something that's not taught in schools that even for adults is mm. a very complicated subject and we're managing to again like record hours and hours of the best teachers we have right now someone called Joe Norman who's a complexity scientist amazing amazing very knowledgeable guy and right. we and he's one of the people building this tutor right where we're teaching kids starting 7 years old which is crazy 7 through 18 right. but again this is for you and for me as well complexity science so you can mm-hmm. do this with any subject so we're trying to first spot who are those amazing teachers like dr fineman like and then grabbing that and and, and now it's very labor intensive it takes a while that's why we're not churning out um you know several subjects at the same time like there's a lot that needs to be done and tweaked and there are bugs mm-hmm. and then we get feedback from the kids going through it and we need you know a number of like stories and examples because again it's conversational and and you right. truly feel like you're talking to an adult and to a real person and so in order mm-hmm. to get there it it's very labor intensive so we will get there it's just a matter of you know time and resources so mm-hmm. think thank god we have a lot of people that trust what we're doing and are excited about what we're doing and are backing what we're doing and so with all that support and all the income that we're getting then we we continue to build um what's going to be really an an, an incredible use of ai to teach this kind of thing so yes awesome i'm excited i'm excited to follow synthesis and the, so really really small fun fact uh mm-hmm. this might be like a footnote for you so mm-hmm. i built this side project called shoutout uh where you basically elevate twitter social proof on your website mm-hmm. and the, look at those small how small the world is synthesis yeah. was a paying customer like for uh, that little tool and i was like at that time cool. that's how i found you for the first time even though i know oh. you from david's mm-hmm. emails and what not so that's like that's so fascinating to me tech is so small the world is so small like minded people are like really really like tight into yep. like this Absolutely. like you know i love that area. i love that yeah, yeah. and here love we are that. talking in you know in this podcast mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. awesome let's, so let's step back a little bit i think we've covered a lot of ground about the future the history of education and a little bit about the book and i want to give a chunk of this episode to the book because that's like mm-hmm. that's the highlight of the book but i do also want to unpack what was like your journey being 
as a teacher to edupreneur and first of all what is an edupreneur like if you explain in your own words what is that yeah um so when like i said i wanted to create learning experiences but outside the system so it was mm-hmm. a mix of being in you know in the educa- built building in the education sector but entrepreneur because there were experiences that hadn't been built before and so um that's when i came up with that term which is basically somebody who is fed up with the school system but very passionate about teaching and learning and dedicating you know my life to creating alternative learning experiences outside the school system so that's sort of like what it is and mm. so i'm part of synthesis and that's sort of like where a, a big chunk of my time is going um but that also involves like um i i i kind of stopped when i had a kid 7 months ago but i was writing every week and we can talk about that and how i got into writing um and sharing my views um with you know a mix of my experience plus the things that i'm learning through the lens of a kid with the hope to help other educators and parents open their eyes to to the problems with school and sort of like the solution and how kids learn and that turned into mm-hmm. this book and so um so that's something that I do as well. I write and I sort of have like that public persona where I'm trying to evangelize the alternative education space. I think that somebody has to do it and there are other amazing people also um doing that as well. Um and and so and in addition to that I also try to spot what are those you know in the alternative education ecosystem what are other companies and startups that are building things that will mm. benefit if i were to do something like synthesis where else can i join to sort of like drop my kids off for example and mm. you know like i th- there are many people building things that right. we all need each other in this space because it's very sure. small and if we want to take down the school system and so i also you know i i invest in this companies that i really believe that will mm. have an impact in the future of education so that's sort of like the mix of things that i do under that umbrella of entrepreneur mm. i love that so it's it's kind of like an evangelist uh like pushing the industry forward in a way mm-hmm. like like the alternate mm-hmm. education uh, mm-hmm. i love that and what was who is there like an inspiration behind you being okay I, so for example if someone wants to become a basketball player mj period right if someone wants to become a golf player you know there's like so many like role models right like mm-hmm. who's who's your role model Wow, you know I hadn't there're many many people that I admire and whose work I admire and I write about them actually a lot. Um but there's nobody that well I guess one of the people that first well two people come to mind that that started to sort of spark this interest in me of okay maybe you know there is a way to change things and we need to fight for this and you know it's sort of like it it what what's that word like gave me back my hope after i was leaving mm. the school system one of them was sirkin robinson who unfortunately passed oh away God, about a few yeah. years ago yeah so he for me he was like a rebel in a good sense in the mm-hmm. education space and started to talk about the things that i talk about um and and noticing those problems with the education system and 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 sort of he kind of stayed in the problem although he does have a a book called creative schools that talk about things that we can do but inside the school system i didn't quite hear yeah. things that you could do outside but he was someone that sparked that interest in me at the beginning mm. and then interestingly now someone that's not in the education field but um but he is very passionate about what you know what's wrong with the education system but seth godin are you familiar with seth godin oh yeah 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 oh my god yeah. the legendary so, marketer yeah yes so he wrote he has this education manifesto called stop stealing dreams 
which I've mm. read front and back, back and front. And it really, he's such an eloquent writer. Like I love his books. And by the way, he is one of the people that read my book and endorsed oh, my book, awesome. which is beyond my wildest dreams. Like I cannot believe that so many of my, you know, people that I admire and that whose work I admire um, actually support my work. And so um, he also um, was able to put words into a lot of the things that I had like mumbling in my mind. And I was like, yes, like every time I would read his stuff. And so he also sparked that interest in me um, to start writing and sharing these ideas and digging deeper and asking better questions and deeper questions. And so I guess, yeah, those two. I love it. Ken Robbins, my God, the, his TED talk was you know, so phenomenal. Good. It's so phenomenal. Yeah, house, I think creativity. It's ridiculously Amazing. good. And I think uh, I, the first time I watched, I was in India, probably around my early 20s, 21. The, I was way beyond like my education system at that point. Mm -hmm. And he kind of instilled this creative thought, right? Like you can really think very differently, you know? Yep. The absolutely. TED Talk, yeah. That, that, and Seth Godin, you know, from a... As well. I yeah, still look can't up, imagine. Up so good. Yeah, mm -hmm. we'll 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 definitely good. But I still can't imagine like Seth Godin writes every single day. His blog. He Isn't writes that, because, every yeah. single day. My and God. and yeah, and this idea of not only right, yeah, but shipping your work right, which is huge, and that's something. Well, you know, David Perel is also one of the people that has inspired a lot of the things that I'm doing and that I admire a lot, and someone that mm -hmm. I consider one of my best friends at this point. Um, but but he also taught me a lot about those things, you know, like like the importance of writing in this mm -hmm. age and shipping your work, and and so absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, let, let's talk about David. Mm -hmm. I truly admire his tenacity and his belief in the internet, like the, in the in the people, and he wants more people to be mm -hmm. like him. When I say mm -hmm. him, not exactly mm -hmm. like a replica, but people who rely on their creativity, their talents, their mm -hmm. skills, their writing, mm -hmm. and like make a living out of it, right? And yeah. how did you end up in rite of passage? And what was your the whole relationship with David nurtured from yeah. there. Yeah. So, um, I, so again, when I had left the system, I had like all these ideas of what was wrong and all these questions that I wanted to dig deeper, but I didn't even know where to start. And writing had never even occurred to me as a way of exploration and as a way of learning. No, I had a very traditional view of what writing looked mm -hmm. like, which is the way that we're taught in school. And so, mm -hmm. and I did not by any means consider myself a writer. And so as I was trying to figure out what to do next, I remember my husband was like, Anna, um, there's this guy on Twitter, David Perel, writing about the future of education. And he has similar thoughts to you about what's wrong. And he's talking about how the best teachers in the future are going to be millionaires and they're going to be online. He's like, check, check him out. And I was like, well, th this is a bold claim. Let me, let me see what this is about. <laughs> and so I saw, I loved his views on Twitter. And at the time I had like, like, you know, my, my Twitter was brand new. I had I was reactivating it. And so he, I saw that he was teaching a course called Rite of Passage and it mm. promised that it would help you find your voice and find sort of your purpose. And that it was at the time for people that were sort of switching careers and looking to find out what it is that you want to do next. And so that was sort of like the line that captured me. And so I joined with no expectations, had no idea what I was about to embark myself in. And after that first session, I remember thinking it was my first time taking an online course that was um, 
synchronous, meaning like real life. And I was mm -hmm. mind blown. I was mind blown by the power of online education in that way and how I was able to be so, I, I was so hooked from mm. obviously there's a lot with the fact that David's a great teacher, but I love the community um, that, that was part mm. of this cohort and, and talking to different people that, although we were all in different fields, I don't think there was any teacher in that cohort. Um, right. We had things in common. We had a lot to talk about. And then I, you know, it forced you to start writing and start shipping your work. So he mm. made you write a newsletter and send it out every week. And I was like, who's going to read my newsletter? My mom and my dad. And that's pretty much it. Like, <laughs> what, I have, what, what do I have? No. And so, but because I had this sort of like, well, first the, the support of everyone going through the same thing, but also, you know, you had to be consistent and you had to ship your work. So you had that accountability. And I started to put my thoughts out there again, no idea who, like, who was going to read this or, <laughs> and so I, I started to write on Twitter and I started to send that newsletter. And before I know it, like, again, it wasn't from one day to the other, it took a right. year, yeah, but I started to build a following and people were interested in the things that I was saying. Some people would disagree and that was great because it sparked new ideas or right. I would just put a thought there. And then if people would react to it, I would start to read about it and then write an essay about it. And then I would share it in my newsletter. And so that's sort of how I started to meet people in the field. That's actually how I met my co-founders from Synthesis. They found me through my newsletter. And at mm -hmm. the time, you know, I started growing sort of and becoming a voice in the alternative education space. And at the time, the people at Synthesis needed somebody to start sharing what they were doing because it was in stealth mode and nobody was talking about it. And so I joined them and I was able to bring them the first customers and the investors and the teachers and the students and all this from this audience that I was able to build wow. through David's course. And so David and I connected after session one because I emailed him and I was like, I'm just mind blown and fascinated by the power of this, uh, you know, of, of yeah. the internet and, and how we're able to do this. And we started exactly. And we started to bounce off ideas on about education. We realized we had a lot in common. He saw that I was very excited to keep learning and <laughs> building something around this. And so we ended up creating a summer camp for students where we tried to do a similar version of rite of passage with project-based learning that ended up not working. I mean, we did it and it was great, but none of us wanted to be in charge of the operational parts of the business. We both decided right. that, no, we're both creative people. We don't want to be in charge of, you know, like managing a business. We want to just create content and share and keep learning. And so um, we've kept in touch throughout the years. I help him out with Rite of Passage. He helps me out. He's an investor in Synthesis. We're both investors in different, like, again, things in the alternative education world. He's been a big part of writing my book. He, he, he wrote the foreword of my book. Um, and so we become really, really, really good friends. He's visited me a bunch of times and vice versa. And so at this point, we just have like this big dreams um, about right. you know, different things we want to do in, in education, you know, different, but, but similar. Right. And we support each other. And it's all been throughout his course. And honestly, everything that I owed, like the fact that I'm writing and I'm here and I'm talking and I have a book, it all came from Rite of Passage. Can you, can you imagine the, the level of impact the internet had made on people like you, even me, like, you know, it really changed the trajectory of lives, right? Like, Absolutely. but I think you, the, it, I, I feel internet is a road, but you are the driver, right? You have to really like put on your, mm -hmm. put your hand on your stick and move mm -hmm. lever, like accelerate. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, let's really take time to like embrace the road itself. Like it's mm -hmm. so freaking amazing that the road can take you amazing places, right? It's so fascinating. To, I love hearing such stories because A, it, it, it doubles down the belief I have installed over the years and people who are listening that 
miracles do happen like you know especially we live in the age that anything can happen and mm-hmm. i want to ask like when did you approach right of passage like what what was the year um it was right before the pandemic so 2019 yeah 2019 so um, mm-hmm. we're talking like like less than 4 years we're yeah. not talking like yeah. 10 years span like no. so no yeah so the reason i want to make that uh, as that question is because it really takes like so little time but if you put mm-hmm. if you meet right people have good yep. intentions and, and put if you yourself put in the in, work mm-hmm. put in the work and do shit like in public mm-hmm. ready to fail and mm-hmm. these are all sound sound may cliche but these are all the actual things that you really have to do right like mm-hmm. and i i loved that story i i, I didn't know s- such details oh. i know david mm-hmm. mentions you so many times in his oh, emails and whatnot as as a as a role model but that that is awesome and let's talk about so one of the biggest questions i have i'm not a writer i, I try to write tweets threads but i definitely am not like a long form writer which is something i'm trying to like you know uh mm-hmm. added to my skill set mm-hmm. people have different sets of writing methods so mm-hmm. one of the popular writing methods david uh preaches is like imitate then innovate right like you mm-hmm. kind of really copy you get into the rhythm then you find your own voice then you create you know that's mm-hmm. like a gist do you have any creative methods that you follow in terms of your writing process Ooh, okay. So I I think that it's it's been changing with with the years. Sort of the the way that I started to write is very different from the way that I write now. And actually mm. I haven't been writing like frankly for the past 6 months I've been full on in mom mode. But um I think okay, so when it, when I started to write again, the first time it was in David's course, I I I had only my experience sort of um to talk about. And so I started writing about my experience and it was a very traditional way of like starting with an outline and it was very hard for me to go from an outline into like a piece of writing and then David was like no no I want you to forget all those things that that school taught you like start with the blank page and this and that like no you write from abundance and I was like well what does that mean and he was like well you need to read you need to go out have conversations and then you need to capture all this information in an information capture system for for me it was like my notes right so he's like you you do that for a while and then once you have so much information about a topic that you're interested in that you've been collecting from conversations and podcasts and reading and this and that and then you sit down and you start writing about it and i was like okay so it's this idea of writing from abundance and so that's how i started to write i started by okay so i would spend most of my days obviously this was before i had a baby but i would spend <laughs> most of my days reading and most of my days listening to podcasts and having really interesting conversations with people that i would meet on twitter or online or through my newsletter and so it was all about like you know absorbing as much as i can from the world and traveling and then those were my you know my ideas started to um i guess i found my voice because it was a combination between um you know my experience in the classroom you know both as a student of 10 different countries and then as a teacher and then i was um 
my knowledge and educational theory that came from, I guess, everything that I studied um, in college when I was doing childhood education and special education and psychology. And then I became really interested in like the world of gaming and of investing mm-hmm. and entrepreneurship, you know, entrepreneurship. And so I started reading books that had nothing to do with education. Um, this was sort of like the second phase of my writing process. And oh, wow. um, everything that I do everything that I read, even, you know, it's a book about investing has nothing to do with education, but it does like everything has. And uh, if you look at it through that lens and everything that I do, I look at, I look at it through the lens of a kid. So I was like, this applies to kids, or I can see how I can tie this. This is really interesting if I tie this because it's applicable to an adult reading this, but then also they can apply it with their kids or a kid reading this can actually grasp this concept. So it became about that, about, you know, how can I mix my experience of being a teacher with these really cool things that I'm reading from other fields that have nothing to do with education, try to connect them and then put an interesting twist to it. So then it became that. And then in terms of actual writing um, and, and what you mentioned about copying. So for me, um, again, in school, we had this idea of teaching like, oh, big words and, and, and robust words and this like SAT words that you need to add and like a minimum, you know, like it has to be five pages long and like all these parameters that I think about and they're so silly because so that's stressful. not how you write in the real world. You know, I think it's Morgan Household that says like something like there's a tweet, like in school, they make you write five pages of an essay. In the real world, it's like, tell it to me in five sec in an email in five sentences or I'm out. Like, I don't want to hear about it. So it's like, what, what have you been teaching me, right? So I was like, no, I want to learn how to write very succinct, very to the point. You know, if right. it's not meant to be, if it's something that, you know, many books should have been articles. So I was like, many articles can be tweets. And so I started using Twitter a lot because it forces me to condense my ideas into 180 characters, at least before. Now you can write more. But, and so that was a great exercise for me because I, it's very easy mm. to write a very long thing, right? They say like, right. like I, I'm sorry that I wrote you a long letter. I didn't have time to write you a short one because when you write shorter things, it's a lot harder. You have to cut words. You have to say yeah. things the most clear way. So I really, that was the hardest part for writing for me, but I, I think that I've gotten pretty good at it, um, which is just like shorten it, making it, you know, that anyone can read in passing quick. Anyone can understand from a kid to an adult. So nothing that's too complicated. Mm. If it's too complicated, it's not good enough. And so that was sort of like a good exercise that I did. And then I started to really get into the rhythm of Twitter. So if you read my book, actually, it's funny because it's a compilation of all my writing for the past two to three years Mm -hmm. um, that I've condensed into a book with a storyline. I've turned into chapters and everything. Um, But it's most of the phrases are tweetable because they come, they originated as tweet thoughts. Mm. You know what I mean? That I then expanded. Mm. But what's good about that is that they're very, um, like, like it's very easy to understand. You can sit down and read my book in one sitting if you're a fast reader. Right. Mm. So, so, and that's sort of what I wanted to achieve with my writing. That's what I wanted to achieve with my book. I'm like, I'm not, if I'm going to write a book, it's not going to be a book that could have been an article, right? Like Mm. it's something that I want for people to really get value and, and enjoy reading and simple to read the simpler, the better. So Mm. I'm hoping that I achieve that. (laughs) Um, so again, I, I haven't told you like a very specific method, but that's sort of like, um, where it is. So it's, so now it starts with tweets and ideas. I see what people find interesting because I love getting feedback from my audience. That's why I have an audience, right? So that I can, you know, improve my thinking Mm -hmm. and improve my writing. And so when I see that something is interesting and takes off, I'm like, okay, I need to dig into this. And then I try to incorporate real life examples and I always try to make it actionable so that parents or educators or whoever's reading my writing can actually try something after it. And so that's sort of my process. It's very messy, as you can see, and it keeps changing i'm sure that if we talk again in a year it's going to be different but 
yeah it's i think it's authentic i would say it's basically true to the purpose and the purpose is for you right now is like you know given you're a mom you have little much time it changes right like situations yeah. and consequences changes mm-hmm. one thing i want to mention when you uh when you talked about everything matters everything counts and i want to quote james clear on this he in one of the podcasts i don't know which one he says he reads like an eagle he consumes like an eagle basically he really wants to hunt down few things uh that will give him more ideas about the thing that he's thinking right like that, just the way you mentioned yeah anything That's that great. you read you basically are going to add up to the future of education period mm-hmm. like that's your purpose yep right and i loved it so much and i it's basically your seeking like constantly seeking and you're adding to your i don't know like it's it's more of like a wisdom gauntlet you may call it and you end up throwing that once in your case it's like the book right i'm really mm-hmm. excited to like get my hands on the book when it goes yeah. out in september yeah would love to like you know read and yeah. um, share it with my wife and what i kind of wish i kind of wish i had sent it to you before our podcast but i just received them last week oh, but yeah, i'll send you a copy i saw i saw that i saw that tweet yeah. i yeah, yeah very love exciting that. yeah so one thing before we dive into the the actual book i want to i want to talk about the whole book but one of the things uh that i recently discovered being with ruhan right my my 2 year old toddler he's like a sponge he absorbs so much information like he goes to daycare he learns something and he comes back and he replicates right and he mm-hmm. we read books in the in the night time like bedtime reading and the the next day he actually recites that book mm-hmm. so he's basically consuming 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 observing 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 learning Then, learning 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 constantly constantly like feeding right feeding on to like anything that passes to him why do we as adults don't do that in your opinion i love that question yep and i i faced i really am asking for myself i really don't care, care about the listeners i just yeah. want to learn from you yeah how do we build this constant mm-hmm. learning machine within ourselves mm-hmm. as an adult mm-hmm. 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 um so there's not not an easy answer to that but i love that question and i think about it often so if you spend time with kids which like you're saying you observe them they are like sponges they're absorbing mm-hmm. everything they are learning machines they're super curious they want to know everything that's why they ask why a lot and then you <laughs> respond and they say but why but why they're not trying to bother you they're just genuinely curious that's the way of trying to think from first principles which is like deconstruct all these things that the world is throwing at them they they want to understand they they you know and for that they have to ask questions or they have to be able to figure out and explore and tamper with the thing and break it and then oh i broke it and put it apart and so all this experimentation and all these questions and all the, they have the opportunity to do it when they're little but what happens and they start to grow up and many of them are put into they start you know going to school or going to the settings where you have 30 kids and there's no possible way that a teacher can handle 
why, 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 why from 30 kids all day long? Like mm. she cannot. So that's where rules and parameters and sort of like restrictions and limitations start to be put. Like stop asking questions, like cheer up, sit down, like not right now. And so we adults start to tamper and Sirkin Robinson talks a lot about this in his podcast, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why in, in, the, in the TED Talk, why schools kill creativity. It's mm -hmm. exactly because of that, because we start to say no, no, and kids start to learn. Again, they learn about everything. They're constantly learning. So when you shut them down and we're, or, or parents, you know, and again, I don't judge, but parents get, you know, you, you've been working all day, you're tired, and then your kid is like, why, 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 why? And you're like, because I said so, or just stop asking <laughs> questions, or go sit down, go play with your toys. Like, you know, we, we fall into this habit, and then the kid quickly learns, oh, I, you know, I cannot ask questions. I, I, I can no longer, I need to now sit down and, and open this book. I can no longer be around exploring and breaking things and fixing things. And so we start to train them to not ask questions, um, to not, you know, keep exploring all day. And because we start to put them all these parameters, that's one thing. Then the other thing is even great teachers, it gets to a point where, you know, kids have like, okay, any questions? And the kids will raise their hand and we'll ask a question. And then they look at you like, oh, that's a stupid question. Or why are you even asking that? Or we already talked about that. Or really, you don't get it. I mean, I'm not saying teachers respond like that, but yeah. the kids quickly start learning. I should not ask questions. Clearly, you know, I, I'm looking like a fool. So if I have a question, I'm just going to shut up and, and, and that's it. They have very few time to then go and figure it out because they're in school for so long that they have homework. So we start to create this environment where we are a responsible society for tampering down a lot of these things. That paired up with, and I have a whole section in the book that talks about failure mm. and how failure, we've, we've learned to associate it with something really negative when in reality, failure is synonymous with learning. And obviously, I'm not talking about a catastrophic failure. Like that's no, I'm talking about like as kids, that is the time you have to make lots of mistakes and to make lots of failures because they don't have big consequences as they do when you're adult, you know? So instead of punishing them the way we do in school with the red mark and the F and this and that, where they, they're like, okay, I'm no, I'm no longer going to try because if I make a mistake, I get in trouble or I get the F or I get penalized. We are the ones, again, training them to not try and to not go ahead and explore and to not. And so it becomes, it's really detrimental. And it's one of the biggest problems that we have right now up mm. with the school system we're training generations of kids to become you know not ask questions be scared of failure and to trying things and to try things that may be a little bit risky and they don't you know they're very risk averse and it's all because of us and they're losing that curiosity the dedication of my book is to my son and it's and it's very simple it just says stay curious because mm. to me that is the most important quality that a human being can possess if you are able to remain intact you know remain with your curiosity intact you win in life because you're unstoppable. You're going to try things. You're going to ask why, you know, you're not going to just accept answers because somebody says that or because, no, you're going to dig deeper. You're going to be a skeptic. You're going to try things out. And for me, that's the definition of success. And that's what I want for my kids. And that's what I think we should be teaching. And unfortunately, it's really hard to do within the school system. However, and I talk about this in the book as well, if you're a parent, and you cannot afford to take your kid out of school. There are certain things that you can do at home, the language that you use to reinforce certain things or to dismantle certain myths that they're going to learn in school. 
because they have to go to school, unfortunately, for this and this reason. But you at home can be the one that says, you know what, don't worry about that. That's not how it works in the real world. Unfortunately, you have to go and you have to do that, but don't worry about that. Or you mm -hmm. got this grade. Okay, but I actually saw you study and I know you know this content, but hey, you got this one wrong and this, don't worry about this. This does not define your intelligence. Or, you know, parents have the chance to sort of cultivate that inner curiosity and desire that gets tampered down. And all this leads to lifelong learning. Um, mm -hmm. And to want to continue learning, which is sort of our goal as parents, we want that for our kids, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so hopefully that sort of touches upon, again, not a clear cut answer, but, right. but what you were talking about. I think it, it plays, we play a massive role uh, as parents. We have to hold ourselves to a highest, you know, regard mm -hmm. and highest accountability that we make sure that it's, it's kind of like, an, like a reminder to me. I am already kind of doing that with Ruhan. Mm -hmm. And he's like, when it gets annoying, after I had like a long day, he keeps asking, Dada, come here, mm -hmm. Dada, do this, do that, do mm -hmm. that. And I'm like, go play with your toys or we just turn yep. on the TV and give him some TV yep. time. Mm -hmm. I feel it's a great reminder because it might be like a short-term fix if we just mm -hmm. like, you know, ignore them. Yep. But that is going to be make a massive long-term impact on them, right? Yep. So, yep. Especially uh, this the, the first seven years of life, are so crucial to build that foundation for lifelong learning so crucial mm. um so so you know really letting them play and explore and answering their questions to the extent that we can because again we're human and we're tired and <laughs> we have the right you know for that as well but like really those first seven years are are so important um to determine mm. how they're going to turn out in terms of their curiosity and life learning and creativity and all that i love that Awesome. Let's get into the, the big topic. Uh, let's get into the book, The Learning Game. So talk yeah. to me about the book. What is the book about? What it, what it covers, you know, yeah. end to end? What is that yeah, so, that you want to convey? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I've talked about, uh, about it and referenced it a lot during this conversation because it happens to be um, a collection of all, all my thoughts around education and the school system and everything I've written. It's a compilation of everything I've written in the past three to four years since I started writing. And so, um, as I was mentioning at the beginning of the conversation, when I was going through this journey and decided, you know, I'm going to, to make this hard decision to leave the school system for all the reasons that we've talked about today, I started asking a new set of questions. And um, so I was like, well, how... I've already realized that we're playing the game of school. The game of school does not transfer to the game of learning. Well, mm. how can we transform the game of school into the game of learning? That was one of the big questions that I wanted to answer in this book and that I hopefully was successful mm -hmm. at doing that. And how do we make learning sustainable, like we were talking about, through childhood? Because kids, again, are hardwired to learn. But how can we cultivate that? What we were just talking about. Um, through childhood and then into adulthood so that we continue to be curious and, and lifelong learners. And then how do we go back to the root of what really makes kids learn and what makes them excited to learn? Not what the curriculum says that we should do, not how we've been doing things for a long time, but really just, again, from first principles, like deconstruct, what does it mean to learn? How do kids learn? How can we tap into that? And then looking at the world today and looking at what's happening and the skills that kids are going to need in the future. And so how can we arm them with these tools to succeed in this game of learning and the game of life? So my book is sort of my attempt to answer these questions. It's a collection, like I said, of all the work and my findings since I quit teaching. And it's mm. about how to challenge 
a lot of the misconceptions that we have about learning and about education or the things that we've taken for granted from the roots of the education system, like we talked about at the beginning, to our modern school curriculum. But it's not just a book about like school per se, right? It's first and foremost a book about kids, right? Mm. Like you, you mentioned at some point in this conversation, like kids are the explorers and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the inventors of the future, right? So it is our responsibility as adults to question again and again, whether their learning circumstances are actually enabling them to reach their full potential, right? right? And I think the answer is no. And <laughs> if we don't course correct that, then, then who yeah. will, right? Yeah. So again, my goal with this book is not to convince you to take your kids out of school, although you may. Um, but rather it is to help you and parents realize why traditional school no longer meets the needs of our kids today and mm. sort of what you can do about it, right? So we mm. owe it to kids to leave behind this game of school and actually play a better game, right? A more important game, one that is relevant to them and to the world that we live in that's constantly changing, right? And so hopefully the book gives you practical tools um, to design this learning game with your kid based on what mm. it is that works for you and for your family, right? Um, and so I give a lot of practical tips. I share um, what has worked for different families. I, I like I said, it's, it's a collection of work from other fields of life, um, but applied and lessons from other fields of life applied to the lens of education and kids and parents. And so hopefully, you know, my, my goal with this book is that it opens opens the eyes of many parents um, for things that are pretty obvious, but if you don't, if you don't see them or talk about them, then you can quickly, you, know, you can easily just breeze them through. Right. And hopefully it will give you confidence to sort of question what you've been told in the past about how learning works. Um, and will give you confidence to unlearn a lot of those damaging life lessons. I mean, school lessons that you learned and not everything in school was negative, right? But, but the negative things, hopefully you'll start to rethink those for yourself right. and for the education of your kids. And hopefully it will give you, cause I, you know, confidence to experiment with something different, right. And mm -hmm. to try something different and know that, you know, your kids will be okay. And, and, and I talked to a lot of parents, you, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about it, but you, you had this one question that, that, that I, I, I smiled when I saw it. Cause I was like, it's something that a lot of people, my friends ask me, they're very worried that they're going to do the right thing or the wrong thing with their kids. Mm, and so, mm -hmm. and they're always like, you know, what if I screw this up? Like I'm very, and I'm like, just the fact that you are worried about that and that you're thinking mm. about that makes you a good parent. Um, mm. Cause you, you know, and, and, and I have this really good friend of mine that she doesn't want to put her kids, her kids, she's very young. She's a year and a half in school, but she's always like, but, but Anna, what am I going to do? How do I know if she's learning? How do I know? And I'm like, Look, she's always with you. You're always doing exciting stuff. She's watching you work. She's watching you do this. You take her everywhere you go. You go to exciting places. You do. She is constantly learning. Like you said, they're sponges. They're learning from everything. You better believe that they're learning even more so than they would be doing at a rigid um, school setting. So mm -hmm. trust that if you are involving your kid in your decisions and the way you, and you're, you know, walking them through the things you do and you're talking to them and you're exposing them to books and you're taking them to places and museums and meeting other kids and, you know, all these things you, you need to trust they are learning because that's how they're hardwired. Like that's what mm -hmm. they just naturally do. You don't mm -hmm. have to put them in a school setting in order for them to learn. And so that's sort of like the big message that I want to send out with this book. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to calm parents down and know that 
that they will be okay. <laughs> they are learning, right? As long as they're not, you know, sitting down watching TV all day, like obviously then, but, 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 but they, they are learning. Yeah. So in a way, I think the book is definitely for parents about kids, but from your answer, what I'm getting it is it, it is for learners. Absolutely. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's for people who wants to keep that curiosity up and running. It's, I think, for people mm-hmm. who wants to go back, become the sponges the kids are, right? Like, yep. I, I feel it's for, for people like me and people people yep. who want to like constantly update their, mm-hmm. you know, mindset Absolute. about learning. You nailed it. Absolutely. That's exactly it. So I use the word kids a lot, but but people say this always about my writing. They're like, this is for adults too. Like, and I'm like, yeah, because there are adult ideas that I, you know, I bring down through the lens of kids, but the, the ideas are applicable for anyone that you said is curious, wants to keep learning, wants to cultivate this love for learning. And it's just interested in the nature of, and the science of learning. That's, that's the audience for this book. I love that. So if I remember it right, you were pregnant while you were, you got the book deal. And I, I think I, I saw your tweet about like announcing the deal and whatnot. How is how is the book emotionally connected to you? Uh, it's like mm-hmm. I said in the beginning of the conversation, you literally had two babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How is it like it, the book will grow with Fernando and you know over the years? Yeah. And so, talk to me yeah. about the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it it was very emotional. So it's funny because I I talk a lot about kids and about learning and about you know things for parents. But I wasn't a parent, right? And although I did, I must say, I did feel always that I was the parent of every single student that I've had. And I, and I mean that. And I think that if you talk to my former students, they will tell you, yes, she was like our mom. Like, you know, I, I actually, David wrote, wrote this in my foreword, but I had like 19 former students of mine show up surprised at my wedding. Like I, you know, that wow. to me was like, like they planned the whole thing, different grades, different students that I had done in the past. They just showed up surprised at my wedding, wow. wedding ceremony. And to me, that was like, wow, these are my kids. Right. right. But I didn't have a kid myself. Like I wasn't a parent, like really officially like parent. So it's funny because like I said, I, I wouldn't have been able to write from scratch this book so quickly, but it was a compilation of a lot of the things that I had written that I was like, you know, I want to grab this mm. articles about failure and this articles about gamification and this article and mental models for parents and put it together in a way. And then I turned them into chapters and I combined them and I added new chapters. But it was very interesting going through that process pregnant because a lot of this writings I had done when I was not pregnant years ago, you know, mm, and, and right. I found myself tweaking a lot of the, you know, not a lot, but like, like the content based on the emotions that I was feeling at the moment and the concerns that started to rise in me as a parent. I feel like I started to understand right. a bit more the parents of the students that I had had um, because it's, yeah, it's, it's very natural. And, and, and now that I have the kid, it's even more like, I understand a lot of things that, that parents would talk to me about, like, but Anna, what about this? What about that? And so I definitely found myself changing a few things. Um, And, but suddenly the work became 10 times more meaningful and more important Mm -hmm. because I was like, well, I'm going to have to start thinking about what I want to do with my kids differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And I really want to make sure that I have a playbook or something that I can try so that I keep their curiosity alive. And so that I, I, you know, learning is always fun for them. Mm -hmm. And so, so it, it definitely became, you know, 
more closer to my heart. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very excited for him to find out someday that I was doing this while I was pregnant and, and mm. that I had him in mind while I was doing all this. And so, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, th I think it's a true tribute to him as well, right? You know, uh, and the way he said it, stay curious. I think this book, yeah, I'm sure that it'll uh, make more people stay curious. That's the mm -hmm. that's the whole intention, and I I can mm -hmm. sense that intention like clearly from mm -hmm. you. Um, mm -hmm. I think going back, you just also kind of mentioned about one of the questions I had for you. I have this constant fear about Ruhan, and I'm sure like you know parents like me has this are we doing the right thing are we mm -hmm. like putting i know he's early but there are like mm -hmm. uh, parents with you know older kids that are are they putting their kids in the right places with the right mm -hmm. people with the right opportunities so that they can unlock their potential to mm -hmm. do the same for the society and and together mm -hmm. we'll build like a better future right mm -hmm. what advice do you give uh mm -hmm. I know it definitely don't need to be like a like a like a straight answer because there I believe mm -hmm. there is no straight answer to it. But mm -hmm. in your experience, your uh, experience talking to many parents, mm -hmm. what what do you what do you talk to them about this particular topic? Yeah. So so the, the I think that the the best thing that you could do as a parent is to have frequent check-ins and conversations with your kids. And that includes you, that you have a two-year-old. They're never too young. Like even, you know, the way I speak to my child, sometimes I'm like, <laughs> he won't respond to me, but I, I still talk to him. You know, my voice is different. I won't talk to him with this tone of voice, right, but right. I am talking to him as if he understood me, as if he were an adult, because he probably right. does pick up on things. And so have constant check-ins and conversations with your kids and take them seriously. So, um, and again, and, and, I, and I talk about this and I give specific ways to do it in the book, but, but they, re, they know, they know if they're learning or not. They know if they're enjoying an activity or not. They know if their time is being well spent mm -hmm. or not. Um, and again, you need to take it with a grain of salt because sometimes they'll be like, mm -hmm. they try one soccer practice and they're like, I'm done. And it's like, well, actually you could push them a little bit mm. more and try a few more. And then it turns out that after the third one, they, so, so there's a balance there. Right. But 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 yeah, you're you're never too late. I mean, you're too late once they graduate high school and they're off. Then yes, right. the time there's a really good visual in my book that shows like the amount of time that we parents have with our kids. And mm. there's it's like a timeline, like the the lifespan of your kid, and then like the amount of time that we have with them. And it's mm -hmm. very when you look at it in perspective, it's very small. It's it's oh 18 God. years out of their entire life, and that's the moment you have to impact they're everything right and so um during that time that he's that 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 they're with you I just, whenever I just you got, i just got goosebumps, goosebumps. My God. yeah it's yeah no yeah. i think mm -hmm. wow that's a, that's a different way of looking at your kids that you have mm -hmm. a very short and like you said even yeah i think even in the 18 years the seven years is really crucial right the first seven years yeah Absolutely. so even after seven years like they they're on their they, own like in a way but own. even yeah, they come back from school oh or they come back and they, and then you hear them talking and you realize they have friends that you don't even know about that they have, and they have their own little world, even though they're seven, you know, they're oh. like, and that's when it hits you. It's like, wow, they don't like, I don't influence every decision 
anymore. And so while you have that influence and while you, and even, and even after they're seven, eight, you can still have these conversations with them, but be their ally and be like, okay, I, I want what's best for you. We are a team and acknowledge that you are going to make a ton of mistakes. Like I feel like a, a big mistake, like my parents were amazing, but a, 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 something that I've spoken to them about, it's like, they, they felt like they had to be the ones in control. And so they, they, to my eyes, they always pretend like they were always right. And they always had the right answers and they always went, no. And I started to pick up on that as I was growing up, I was like, no. And so I want to do that differently with my kids. I want, I want for them to know very clearly, I do not have all the answers. We are both mm. learning. We're both trying to figure this out together. There are times that I'm going to be wrong and there are times that you're going to be wrong. And so having those open conversations and every time, you know, you, you, it's not too late if you're in those 18 years to try something and, and maybe it works for your kid. Maybe it doesn't, but always observe your kid. If your kid is happy and, and this may be the case that they go to a traditional school and they're happy, they have friends, they're excelling, they love it. They love their teacher. And if that's the case, amen. Great. You know, your kid is learning because your kid is excited. Your kid is talking about school happy and it's coming back happy. So if that's the case. Amazing. But if that's not the case, then it is your responsibility as a parent to seek for alternative options and to pull your kid out of that setting and keep trying different settings until you find where your kid comes back and says, wow, I learned about this and I tried this challenge and it did not work, but I tried to get like those kind of feedback is what you as a parent should be constantly seeking for mm. and having those open conversations. Like, I feel like a lot of parents just don't have those. They, they feel like, no, but they're just kids. No, they're not just kids. Like mm. they understand way more than you think. And if you have those open conversations with them and check-ins constantly, mm. you're both going to be able to make better choices as a family for whatever's best for your kid. I love that. I think uh, it's just basically expressing, right? Like talking to your, mm -hmm. your kid as if you're talking mm -hmm. to your wife or your father or your mm -hmm. basically like someone who you're sharing. Right. So I think. And taking seriously uh, what they're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I never thought of that way. It's very interesting what you said. Um, uh, yeah. I think it's, it's Anna, what, what did you do to me? The 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 whole <laughs> eighteen years thing shook me up. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, I need to show you. I'll I'll send you the visual after our conversation, um, so that you see it. But it's it's very yeah. It, it makes you stop and think oh, and reflect. Man. Oh my god! Okay, couple couple of things. Uh, one is, what are a few things in the book that that didn't end up like some of the chapters or some of the teeth that you want to highlight mm. now that we're talking the book literally is behind now that you can make amends to it uh what are those few things interesting you know what i did not think about this question um let me think because there were some chapters that i left out hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. Um, I think I would have wanted to include, but the good thing is that this means I have content for another book. Yes. I was, um, I was literally about to, when you, when you had such a long pause that, that itself means to me that there is a part two. <laughs> well, one, <laughs> one thing that I'm very interested in now, and I kind of started, but then I paused because I had to finish the book and have the baby but, and da, da, da. But now I, you know, um, I would love to get back to, but I feel like we have a lot to learn from, um, people that have succeeded in the real world that have gotten to where they are um, through unconventional paths. So kind of like the name of your podcast, but like 
Yeah. Mm. And there, there's a lot of these people. And these are the people that I'm most fascinated by, you know, not the people that, that you know, when you, when you look at the background of the people that, you know, at least that you'd like admire, like many of them, you know, went against the grain, very unconventional. They were the misbehaved in the classroom. They were the ones that would skip class and were like outside working on this obsession that they had. Mm. Um, and, and so like that, so that's one thing. And then the other thing that I noticed about these people that fascinates me and I want to dig deeper is that all these people counted with the unconditional support of their parents, regardless mm -hmm. of what they were doing. No idea was too big or too small. Like they counted, like they felt competent. They felt like, you know, they had that security in themselves because their parents just sort of like supported whatever they were doing at the moment. And right. that says a lot. And, and just a quick parenthesis, as a teacher, I could always tell after the first week of school without meeting the parents, who were the kids that had um, involved families and supportive mm. families and who were the kids that unfortunately came from broken homes without knowing you could just tell after a week of spending time with them because of their behavior, because of the way that they would approach failure, the conversations that they would have. And so, so it, again, it, it, it's, it goes back to this idea that the influence that we have as parents is huge on our kids mm. and how they end up and what they end up doing. And again, there's something about those like quote unquote troublemakers that they end up <laughs> Like, it's like they understand since they're little that school is not the place mm -hmm. that's going to prepare them to do big things in life. And so I'm very interested in, in, in that. And, and I want to dig deeper in that. So, so who knows? Uh, maybe after I do my research and, and I talk to yeah. different people, I will compile and write about I it. Would, I would love that compilation because for many reasons, it, it, it kind of gives you a reassurance that the things you do sometimes fail, but here mm -hmm. are the you know, the people mm -hmm. who did it the same way. And who right? didn't like, give up, right? Who didn't exactly. give up when, when, uh-huh, exactly, I would, exactly. I would, I would push you to like publish another <laughs> book, like part For two, the learning game part two. We're already manifesting <laughs> it in this podcast without Love even it. the book being Love released. It. But yeah, I'm going to manifest that for a lot. Awesome. I so like that. The, the follow-up question to that question is, if you were to pick a parent like me and Hey, Sharad, this is the most important chapter you should focus on in my book. What would that chapter be? Um, I think the game, uh, the, well, the chapter called The Game of School. I think the chapter called The Game of School. Yeah, because it really, um, I, I, I kind of talked about it in, in the book, but it really makes you um, realize that oh, maybe kids are not learning what they're supposed to be learning in school. Maybe there is a better way. And it talks about specific lessons mm. that we need to unlearn. It's like lessons from school that we've all learned that mm. we need to unlearn in order to be able to open up space um, mm. to keep on learning um, about the things that actually are useful. So I think that that chapter is probably... Yeah, probably one that you have to. And then, and then also one of the last ones called mental models for parents. And again, okay, I wish I could have expanded on this section now that I think like this is another, like I'm obsessed with the, this idea of like mental models. Mm -hmm. um, I find them way more useful than memorizing a bunch of information that you then forget after okay. a test. But different tried things from different fields that you can apply at home with your kids to help them with everything, right? To, you know, for discipline or for learning or for, you know, relationships, everything. So that mm -hmm. chapter as well. Um, I mean, yeah. 
I talk about how to negotiate with kids. I talk about how the kid's brain works. I talk about what gets them excited, how to get them excited about learning. And it's very simple, but, but, but it works. Um, mm -hmm. I talk about um, the role that video games and games play in education and in learning and dismantle some of the myths around that, um, mm -hmm. that parents like freak out when they first hear it, but then they read about it. They're like, oh, this makes sense. Um, mm. Yeah, so I, I feel like, I mean, the book is for parents. Um, and again, for anyone interested in learning, but parents really get a lot out of it. So, yeah, I love that. I think so in a way I feel, uh, the, the game of school, you, you have to kind of make people realize the, the bad thing of it. I, I think you kind of have mm -hmm. to villainize the mm -hmm. bad to yep. prove a point that, Hey, totally. the other side is really mm -hmm. can be possible. Right. And I, yeah. I can't even like, you know, wait to dig into the book because I want to like, I'm getting very curious, like, oh, what is there? Like, what is that something mm -hmm. I missed? And I can like, you know, yeah. implement for yeah. Rohan. Uh, I, I don't know how many people ask this question now that I know this is your first podcast, but you, you talked to a lot of people. Now, the, now that the book is complete, it's ready to release. How are you feeling, Anna? What's your, what's your feeling like? Um, I, I think I haven't fully grasped like I, I I'm I'm shocked to be honest like I cannot believe that soon in a few months like people all over the world will be able to have a copy of this <laughs> in their hands something that I've been working for so long ideas that I've been polishing for years um and to me the biggest thing is how I went from thinking that I could not write and I hate it writing to then mm -hmm. becoming a published author. Like I say it out loud and I still don't believe it, but it just really makes me realize that you can just do anything that you put your mind to. If you're able to, like, it was not easy <laughs> and I want to do it. Oh my God. Writing is one of the hardest things ever. Even today, like after I have, you know, years doing it, it's very, very hard because you are constantly, um, you know, facing how little you know about a topic and how disorganized your thoughts are and how floppy your thinking is. And it forces you to clarify your thinking. It's really hard. But mm. if you're able to do that hard thing and that uncomfortable thing every day, every day, and if you, you know, the, you will see the power of compounding. And, and, and so, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of myself, of my consistency and, and, and I've proved to myself that, yes, you can do that thing that that's so hard to, for you and you can become whatever it is that you want. So, so yeah, it's, I am still trying to process it. I think that with the baby and everything, I've been super focused on something else that I haven't had time to like really sit down and be like, wow, like it went from this right. to the, like, it's mind blowing. You, you should definitely take a 24 hour, like literally 24 hour, like no baby no family nothing i think idea. it's like it's like from that show parks and rec i don't know if you saw that it's like treat I yourself have, but i haven't seen uh-huh it's like I there, is, there is this treat yourself day in that show <laughs> and <laughs> a couple of characters they go bonkers they just go like do whatever they want i think you deserve that now that you've mentioned That's i think a it's a good idea it's so many years of uh hard work and mm -hmm. smart work distilled into like that book right right there sitting mm -hmm. in back of you and if you were to advise people so the the amazing thing i love about you is you're so humble you're easy to speak oh. you're so warm you're like very approachable 
and that 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 itself makes you a great teacher right uh and just in your answer you just said that i never believed i wanted to become a writer now that i have a published book so that whole phase there are many people listening including myself and i still even today i don't have that belief that i will write a book in the future where should what is that that playbook that you give us to people like mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. who are in like 4 years ago ana right like yeah what was that playbook like so so i i think i spoke in this in a conversation with david but um the first thing is identifying what are you crazy passionate about like what's that one thing that you just cannot stop thinking about and 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 you know sometimes it's obvious sometimes it's not obvious you know mm-hmm. so you can talk to your parents i have a video and and an article and i actually write about it in the book called um your, what's your specific knowledge which is a term mm-hmm. that naval ravikant talks about mm-hmm. um but finding out what that is you know that unique combination of your skills and the things you love and the things that you're good at that you can provide to the world and and again you can talk to your parents about what were some things that i was doing effortlessly as a kid or to your you know closest friends mm-hmm. or just taking a day off to kind of like reflect on it and then once you find that um then trying to figure out well what can i do with this right because when you find what you love and you probably know this and it sounds cliche but it's true you don't have a problem spending hours and hours and hours mm. working on it and that's what takes you know to be good at anything right you need to mm. spend hours and hours and hours perfectioning your craft and you won't be able to do that if you don't love what you're doing And so um I I was able to do that. I realized well I love teaching and learning and I and and but 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 I'm not doing it the right way here. So how can I find a better way to do it? And then something that that has meaning, right? I knew that I was impacting every time I would write one of these articles, I would put it out and I receive emails or messages from parents saying, "Wow, Anna, you helped me with this." And there's no you know that's the most rewarding thing for me if i know that there's a child in a home right now that's going to experience something differently because their parents read my writing like that's enough for me to keep going mm. and so once i found that and i realized well i'm good speaking i'm good writing um you know i and distilling this ideas in a way that makes sense to people i better zoom in on that um and then f- super important is finding that community of people that will mm. make you that will hold you accountable when things get hard because things will get hard it's not like i keep i'm talking about the good things and this and that but there were so many moments that i wanted to give up so many moments that i was like this article is bs like why am i even doing this i have nothing interesting to share to the world like who do i think i am i was constantly faced with this thoughts like constantly throughout this journey but i had people like david perel i had the people in right of passage cohort i had the friends that i i was you know right. you know developing and all this keeping me true to myself and saying no ana like this is really interesting you don't see it because you you're too immersed in it or actually ana you don't really know what you're talking about here this is you know dig deeper go so so having that community of people that will keep you accountable was super important for me as part of this journey and then as seth godin talks about and david talks about shipping your work because not mm, you can do and yeah. do and do and do and keep it to yourself and that's what's comfortable but once you put it out there 
which is not comfortable at all. Like it's still nerve wracking. Like every time we do a podcast and I'm like, oh my God, I'm on video. It's recorded. It's out there. People can listen. And yes, and that's good because that's where yeah. you're going to get feedback, positive or negative. That's where, you know, the conversation starts going, right? So you have to ship your work, even though it's embarrassing, even though it's not easy, even though you have to do it. That's how you grow. That's how you improve by looking, you know, I, I started recording videos and now I look at my first video and I'm like, oh my God. But then I'm like, oh my God, because I see right. how much I've improved. Yes, it's embarrassing and torture to see it. But then I'm also very happy because I'm like, because yeah. I kept going and I didn't give up, my videos are so much better, for example. And so, right. yeah, just counting with that support system, um, finding that thing that you're truly passionate about and putting in the reps, putting in the hours and, yeah. and trusting the power of compounding, you know, like you write something and you ship it every week, it turns eventually into a book, right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. I love that. Let the universe cook for yourself, right? Like, uh, on your behalf, one, I think you have to do the work again, going back to the road driver car analogy. I think the internet provides you a big road you can go mm -hmm. in any lane you want fast middle slow lane doesn't matter mm -hmm. but you have to drive you have yep. to really put the pedal Absolutely. put your feet on the pedal and you have to like move forward i love that yep. uh, mm -hmm. last mm -hmm. question before we we wrap up i'm sure that you talked about a lot in the podcast as well the ups and the lows Talk to me about some of the, some of the lows you faced when you were writing the book. When did you ever face it? Like, you know what? This is too much. I'm not going to ship this. Like, even though you shipped so many articles, so many con, yes. so many Absolutely. content and whatnot. And how did mm -hmm. you dealt with it? Like, is there in a, is there like some sort of being a, th there is like some sort of wisdom that you accumulated, right? That helped mm -hmm. you like okay, overcome that face yeah so oh my gosh so many times writing the book and i had this big belly and i was like what am i doing you know <laughs> and especially when you're so immersed in a project um and and i have this flaw that i have many many flaws but one of my flaws is that i'm a perfectionist and that is the biggest enemy for shipping stuff, right? Because mm. in my mind, nothing is ever perfect and nothing is ever good enough and nothing is. But for example, being in a course like Rite of Passage, you don't have an option. You have to pick a day of the week and every single week while you're in the course for five weeks or six weeks, that newsletter has to go out, however it is, you know? Mm. And so it, having those, and somebody asked on Twitter, one of the questions they wanted to ask, and I think it goes with this, um, having the uh, like deadlines for me was important. But then before the deadline, like the time, you know, let's say like, oh, I have a podcast this day. But before that day, I don't put anything in my calendar. My, like I can structure my days however I want, but I know I have that deadline and I know I have to, I have that podcast where I have to ship this piece of work by then. And so that gave me sort of like that structure, but also that flexibility to right. find how I want to work and enjoy the process. Because again, if you don't enjoy the process, you get frustrated and it won't go out. So while I was writing the book, there were many times that I was like, I, you know, I had written, I had read the article 20 times, the chapter, I, it had been edited and this, and I was like, no, 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 this is not good. Like, like, well, how, why is this even interesting? Like, no. And I, what I had to do was I had to call my friend Polina, um, who, who, by the way, her book's coming out today, Polina Marinova. Shout out Hidden Genius. Yes. You can go and purchase it now. I've, I read it and it's 
incredible. But anyway, um, I would call Polina and I'm like, Polina, you are my friend and you're going to tell the truth. Read this chapter. You're a parent. You're a writer. Like, is this shit? Tell me the truth. It's providing. And so I would outsource and it's embarrassing, right? Because it's like, but I would outsource it to people that I would trust. And you need to be careful with who you ask feedback from, right? Because if I would put this on Twitter, for example, this is the kind of thing that I wouldn't share on Twitter because I'm looking for very specific feedback. So I would think of the people that I wanted to read this and I would tell them sort of what feedback I'm looking for. I want you to tell me if this is enlightening. I want you to tell me if this is confusing. Mm. I want you to like all the very specific. And so they would get back to me with the truth and I would either tweak it or I'd be like, okay, Anna, this is you getting in your mind. This is providing value. Like somebody that's a parent just told you it's providing value next. So sometimes it was like, I had been working on it for too long and I just had to take a few days apart from my work to not think about it, not, you know, cause I had been, you know, and then when I would come back, I'd be like, oh, I would read it with fresh eyes. And I'd, I'd be like, this is interesting, or this mm. is good. Or, you know, I was my biggest enemy for sure when I was going through this process. And, um, and so, yeah, having people to, uh, to show your writing and ask for honest feedback, stepping back when things, when, you know, when I wasn't sure about something, and then finding ways to validate your, like, I think I'm going to be honest with you. I thought my book was, and I think a lot of authors, this happens because my book, nobody has read my, like only the people that have endorsed my book and like my husband and Polina right. and like a few friends have read my book, but, but nobody else. So in technically, I won't know if my book is good or not until September 5th, that it goes out into the world and people start reading it. Right. And so it's like, you have this thought, like, is this good? Am I providing value? Like, like, should I publish this book? I think the moment for me was when I reached out to the people that I wanted to endorse my book. And they were names that I was like, they're never going to respond. And the people that I wanted the most read the book and wrote back an endorsement that I was like, oh my God. Mm. That's when I realized I was like, my book is good. <laughs> like I actually... I'm saying something insightful. Like if this people that I, you know, I never, like they, they thought it was really good and they're writing this, like it must be good. And so there, ha there, there comes a point that you have to get out of your head and trust yourself and, and, and tell yourself, have I done everything I could have done to make this good? And if the answer is yes, then you just have to like, let it go. Let it go. You're done. It's going out there. And just, that's it. That's it. So that's sort of like what it was for me. I love that. I think, so in a way, uh, and I, I truly believe in this when I say this, your heroes, the people who you look up to, they have their hard times too, right? Like, and, and it's so, I, I love you particularly after this conversation even more because you're so hum, humble and you're like really talking to like, you know, authentically saying that, hey, man, I had my hard times, yeah, right? Like, absolutely. and I had my doubts too. So I think, having doubts is not the it's quite common right like overcoming mm -hmm. it is like i think the biggest skill we mm -hmm. all have to work on i'm so glad that you have that support system around yourself yeah. good without them i think you know it would be even harder totally. right and on that, on that finding your believers that's what exactly yes. like your mm -hmm. early believers your mm -hmm. cult your tribe yep. your tribe around mm -hmm. you quoting seth Godin, you know mm -hmm. uh, there on that note who do you want to give a shout out to? But particularly about the book. About my book? Yeah. Um, so two people. Um, one, one is actually Polina Marinova, who we mentioned earlier. We both um, were having babies and writing books at the mm -hmm. same time. And we both live in Miami. We're really good friends. So 
um, I think that having her as part of my process and my journey just was very, was, she, she was a very big part of this. She edited my book. She would help me bounce ideas off. She really, really helped me do this. And seeing her doing it with a newborn mm. gave me more strength to say, I can do this as well. So, mm. so that's one. And, and second, my husband's always behind the scenes of everything <laughs> I do. He's not the kind of person that he likes to show his face or he's very private, or, but, but really he is my number one fan, my number one believer, the one that always since day one where I was like, you know, what, what am I going to do with my life? He had all these options. He never like, he, he, he really had this big dreams for me and I've sort of achieved and, and I've grown and grown to believe all these things that he thought about me. Um, and so, so yes, definitely the biggest shout out goes to my husband because he edited my book. He was my number one editor, actually, of the book. Wow. And, and the one that would help me, you know, every time I was stuck with an idea, he had read all the books that I was reading. So he would help me bounce and think through things. He comes from a completely different education background for me. Like he's the student that you know performed really well in traditional school he loved right. school so at the beginning he was like Anna what are you talking about like I love school like he was perfectly cut for the system and so I love that because we were able to have really good conversations from both sides he helps me see the right. other side of the coin right because sometimes I'm too immersed in my world and yep. he plays the devil's advocate so thanks to him I think he totally elevated the quality of my work um, and I and I rarely talk about him so I'm glad you brought that up Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to him. Shout out to Paulina and David Perella, the rest of the folks like who really supported you. And, and I, I can't wait for the book to, you know, go, go in the bookshelves in people's like, you know, office rooms, wherever they want. Uh, but yeah, any, before we wrap up any closing thoughts, Anna? Um, well, not really. I think we covered everything in the conversation. This was this was very fun, very light, um, very insightful. Both sides, you asked great questions. So, so yeah. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I will keep the link uh, for the pre-orders uh, definitely. So people yeah. should definitely oh, pre-order. Oh, I know what. Um, when I sp I forgot to mention when I spoke about the synthesis tutor, I think that it would be fun because I can talk about it, but it's very different when you go through it yourself. And mm. so if anybody is interested in going through it and just experiencing what I was talking about, that I think mm. is the future of education, there is a link um, that I can share or you can put up, but it's synthesis.com slash math. And you can try it for free in 20 minutes. You can go through a lesson in binary numbers, which is what computers nice. are, you know, how computers work. And you sometimes don't learn that, not even in college. Right. And here right. we have seven years old doing it. So anyway, I wanted to share that in case wow. anyone's interested on what the Absolutely. future of education looks like. Yeah, we'll, we'll include that. We'll include the pre-order link. We'll also include, oh my God, I can't, I, I'm, I'm picturing that, that 18 year old, you know, 18, graph. I will send you that. I will send you that <laughs> graph so that you include it because it's, I think it's important. I think it's important. It is important. Definitely. Yes, Even though it makes you cringe. What I believe is the, the thing that makes you cringe is the thing that makes you stronger. So absolutely. You have to keep it like take a, I'll take a printout, you know, so that it remind me how important every minute is with your kids. Right. So mm -hmm. Anna, this has been probably the most, like you said, the light, most authentic, and fun conversation about most insightful things, like you know, most important things in life about kids, mm -hmm. their future, the future of education, uh, about your wonderful book, about your experience of motherhood, the way you wrote the book, and all that. 
So I, from my bottom of my heart, like I genuinely want to appreciate you for taking time for going out of your house to come here to like record this podcast. So you already yeah. went one extra mile and I love that. And I love you so much for being mm-hmm. here and doing the things that you do for kids and for the next generation. So uh, thanks for that. Thank you, Shara. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And that's it, folks, for this episode. Stay tuned for more episodes on the Undefeated Underdogs podcast. That's it. Cheers.